0: Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Joe. Uh, Super excited to have you here and uh, share all the things that you've been working on, a little bit more about your background, uh, how you fell down the crypto rabbit hole, uh, high level, uh, just talking about uh, crypto and some cool things that you're also working on at Framework as well.
1: Yeah, no, appreciate the opportunity, Logan. Uh, Very excited for this opportunity based on some of the stuff we've had a chance to kind of catch up on. So, uh, yeah, eager for it, man.
0: Perfect. Well, let's uh, dive right in. Uh, could you start maybe just sharing a little bit about your background uh, for the podcast listeners?
1: Yeah, sure thing. So I guess kind of going all the way back to the beginning, I, I kind of came across Bitcoin as, as a high schooler. And I kind of find this as a common theme where a lot of, I guess, the younger people find themselves like interacting in a co- like their first economies, like in games, especially this was like, I guess, the the late 2000s. But um was basically using Bitcoin as like a means to get paid while being under 18. So I was like selling in-game assets, et cetera. Uh, And was also really fortunate to, I think, have a father that like kind of helped me understand the non-speculative aspects of this industry um, and of Bitcoin as a network really early on. So um, as I moved into college, I I studied hardware and electrical engineering, and that was specifically in like the med tech application space. But I also started getting involved in in software development, specifically in the e-commerce industry as a self-taught developer. Um, So a lot of my kind of internet friends and developers uh, that I worked with uh, in that space were the ones that kind of introduced me to the smart contract paradigm on Ethereum. This was like early 2016. Uh, And although I never really excelled at Solidity myself, I was fortunate enough to have, I think, the privilege of using and experimenting with a lot of the early DeFi ecosystem like EtherDelta, Maker, etc. And when COVID hit in 2020, it really gave me the opportunity to kind of completely jump into the rabbit hole, so to speak. So I spent, you know, a lot of my time researching the space, mostly as a power user, but also as a community member in a lot of early DeFi projects. This is like the Ethland before Ave compound and urine days during DeFi summer. And I was really just enthralled by like the the speed of innovation, the composability and like how individuals with non-traditional or even like anon backgrounds were empowered to to make meaningful contributions in this space. So that combination of factors like really gave me the conviction to finally jump into the industry full time and kind of leave my uh, my previous career behind. And in the spring of twenty one uh, of twenty twenty one is when I got connected with Vance. Um, I'd followed him for a minute um, on on Twitter, but he got connected to me through my Twitter that was anon at the time. Uh, and I joined Framework as an investor um, almost two years ago. So uh, at Framework, I spend the majority of my time exploring early stage projects across the space and. I primarily focus on developer-oriented products and services and then increasingly more like consumer-oriented applications as we think about the future of of how this technology and this developer stack is is leveraged so that's kind of me in a nutshell
0: definitely uh appreciate all the clarity um yeah it's it's always interesting uh people always come approach the space from different angles and uh So very cool to see how you kind of got your story started, especially coming from uh, the more Anon background. Um, I think that's definitely a Web3 unique attribute.
1: Yeah, I I find that there's like a little bit more similarities maybe with like, I just have so many friends that like did exist in personas through like games or like communities like Discord, Reddit, etc., but I feel like this space has been the first time where like people can like truly engage in economies at scale, um, despite the fact that they're anonymous or despite the fact that they might like lack a traditional pedigree, so to speak. So uh, definitely one of the things that I think I like really aligned with personally and a lot of what gave me the motivation to to jump into the space full time.
0: Awesome. Very cool. Well, I would love to maybe uh, we synced on a couple topics and I think one thing that you and I are both aligned on is ultimately uh, growing like the user base of web three uh, today. That's not very many users, uh, low couple millions. Uh, but I think what everybody wants to really see in this space is getting to hundreds of millions and billions and really talking more so on the, like the high level the dichotomy between like the early web three adopters and some of their preferences compared to what will actually be needed to onboard, say, a billion people into this space. So I'd love to maybe start um, the conversation there and how you're thinking about uh, the early days of Web3 and those users, and then how we actually kind of bridge or cross the chasm in some sense to uh, mainstream adoption.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think there's a number of areas we can jump into here, but like I think one of the things I kind of had to check my bias on, especially uh, following uh, uh, when I joined Framework, was I've, I've had the privilege, I think, of, you know, almost a decade of like self-custody assets on these networks and having a bit of like a script kitty developer background that has kind of empowered me to at least like experiment and kind of stumble, you know, when there's not a lot of assets at stake. Um, but one of the things I've always been trying to check my bias on is that, you know, not everyone kind of shares that same, you know, experience or, or expertise or has had the privilege of the time in the industry to to learn things. So, Uh, you know, there's definitely a number of areas, you know, across this developer stack um, that uh, I think we're finally starting to see middle grounds on where historically we've seen, again, this dichotomy of like, you have the crypto purist approach, or you have like, you know, the like centralized or like retail friendly approach. And I think it's kind of a trend where like every bear market, at least that I've experienced, we do start to see these ideas get experimented more. But this is the first time I felt like there have been concrete improvements, um, specifically from, you know, the next a billion users perspective where people do have like more of a spectrum of, 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 of products and, and experiences to consume compared to the previous ones where it's like, Hey, you're getting onboarded through a, through a seed phrase and metamask and that's the only opportunity or like the only option you have. So yeah, happy to, to, to kind of jump in and discuss this because I think it's pretty relevant right now.
0: Perfect. Perfect. Um, well maybe on a high level, let's start with like articulating the early preferences of, um, adopters and then in your words, like what do you think it will take to ultimately, uh, kind of move that needle per se to actually, um, allow the networks to scale and, um, to like those hundreds of millions or billions of users.
1: Yeah, I think one of the interesting things here is when you like go all the way back to, you know, the start of, uh, I guess we, if we just say like we start at, you know, the early introduction of, of kind of the smart contract paradigm with Ethereum, there were like a lot of factors there that were like, uh, that were required in order for this, like this sort of technology to proliferate. So it's like if we didn't have, you know, majority of these early users having the ability to actually like verify these systems. Well, it's like Ether and Bitcoin, like they they wouldn't have value because like people don't have transparency into like how these systems operate. And I think what we've seen over time is that like as, you know, the tooling around these solutions has gotten better as like the actual user application experiences have have been built out, we've finally at least begun to explore onboarding these users through different sorts of applications outside of like that kind of like technology or like I guess the crypto purist approach. So I think it kind of starts at like the protocol level where it's like we've seen uh you know blockchains kind of become more accessible, but there's still maintain this dichotomy of chains that kind of prioritize I guess what I would call like end-user verification and like how quickly you can allow an end user to actually like participate in the verification through something like a light client. Um, but then on the other side, you know, equally as important I would argue is is the end user access to these systems as well. So those are, you know topics like, uh, you know, like alt layer ones, uh, or other networks that, you know, fundamentally make a different trade-off so that users can actually have the ability to not pay $50 for a trade, et cetera, or whatever it was during the bull market. So I think that's really where it starts is like, I think there's a, there's an, like, uh, there's a necessary, I, I guess, recognition that we must make where these networks would never have proliferated without, um, some of these, uh, I, I guess, uh, uh, trade off so to speak, as far as like empowering the end users to actually like go all the way down the stack and verify these chains themselves and and get access to the code that they're actually like operating on top of um, where on the other side we've definitely seen people take other approaches where uh you know these chains are like solely being created to service end users um, bar none um, and I think that's an important thing right like I don't think we ever go from like uh like one end of the spectrum to the other I think it is important that like we have teams that are experimenting on both sides of the spectrum in order to actually like find middle ground. Um, so that's kind of how I think about like the protocols and like how they service uh, users and kind of what the users are prioritizing.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. I I definitely agree. The space really started from like end user verification and has continued to kind of grow and experiment in different paths since then maybe before we dive deeper into end user verification Hmm. could you i think one of the hard parts about the industry today is like describing decentralization and like talking about like how to quantify it and what it actually means to be decentralized so i'd love for before we jump into like some of the nittier and grittier topics of like in user verification for you to like describe, like, how do you view decentralization?
1: Yeah, I think this is something like even going back to like, even kind of like the peak of the the, the previous cycle, like it was like a very kind of relevant topic as people were kind of attacking the, the trade-offs that different networks made. Right. Um, I think my, I don't want to say my definition of decentralization has changed over time, but I think it's definitely gotten like kind of somewhat more complicated and nuanced um, you know, at the beginning, when I first started like leveraging these networks, um, you know, like the first time I, I like sent like an Ether Delta trade or something like that, like uh, there was like an inherent like desire from myself to like want to understand from A to Z, like why I could trust what was happening, right? And I think a lot of retail users today that are like coming from like more Web two experiences have always just said like, "Hey, I see a brand name on this application." I'm comfortable trusting them. You know, I might not have read the terms of service. I might not have visibility to their backend or what they're doing with my data. But that is kind of like the status quo, so to speak, for 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 some of those people. But getting back to your point, for me, I, I really do kind of rely on the crux of that like decentralization is providing people the opportunity to gain transparency into the systems that they're operating um, from a user perspective, and then from someone that wants to go like a step deeper, it really does rely on like how uh, permissionless. It is for someone to actually like participate in the consensus of the network um, and ensuring that, uh, you know, people kind of regardless of background um, or like access or, or like geographical location have as equal access to participate in that system as possible. Um, that That's kind of how I define decentralization.
0: Yeah, I, I found this is like, uh, it, I guess like... Th- is there a way for you to like quantify it a little bit more? Uh, because I found like this is like a more common uh, point of view, but then we, it kind of gets into the debate of like, all right, like what is considered like fair for like one person may be completely different in terms of like cost for another person. So uh, is is there like more like objectable, like measurable metrics that you look at, or is it kind of just like on this high level, like uh, being able to run a node or verify on chain data?
1: Yeah. Um, I, you know, historically. And I think there's been a lot of just like, I've seen a lot of like discussion on this on Twitter as of late, even going back to like the modular summit in Amsterdam last year, where I, I was fortunate enough to be in person uh, for the debate between Anatolia and Mustafa from Celestia. Um, you know, I think traditionally, like the, the historical metric has always been the, kind of the Nakamoto coefficient and like how many, you know, like single entities essentially it would uh, 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 it would take in order to kind of like uh, break the kind of consensus requirement of the network um, from a majority perspective. Um, I think his, like, I, I still do continue to lean on that. And I think there's been an aspect of I think some of what like specifically Anatolia has started to argue for. As far as just like all that matters at the end of the day is like the amount of replicants of state or the the, the amount of uh, like replicant copies of state uh, and how distributed those are across different operators. Um, There's aspects of that that I agree with. I think there's also aspects of this, as you alluded to, where it becomes more nuanced than like trying to create like a single objective measurement for these things. Um, especially when you look at like modular networks and how there's kind of different operators or roles within each part of the stack, it becomes unfortunately even, even more difficult. But I would say that's probably what I lean on, especially for monolithic chains is like, you know, how many replicants of the state are there and, and essentially like how, how easy would it be for like a single actor to essentially like take over that system?
0: That makes sense. Um, No, I I like to start the conversation there, like just trying to like find like a middle ground because I feel like that's important to kind of like tee up the conversation into going into like more in depth on the technical side. So on uh, your point of view earlier was uh, just like end user verification uh, on the earlier stage or this was the preference of early kind of adopters. And then uh, going forward to kind of mainstream adoption, maybe this may not be as much of a priority for them. So how would how do you see like the landscape, uh, like today? And how do you think it's going to evolve to like the more mainstream adoption?
1: Yeah, I see kind of two approaches there. Like I think a lot of people on the modular side would say that like their hope is that they can construct a like architecture for these networks that essentially like empowers people to participate in some degree of 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 participation and like uh contributing towards the security of these networks without even really knowing it. So this is this like whole concept on like the modular end of 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 the spectrum where, you know, I know there's 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 people that are contributing to some of these projects where they like specifically hope that like, hey, maybe there's like a game wallet or like a browser wallet where users are actually like that, like contributing towards the collective security of the network through data availability sampling or something similar like that, right? I think the other side of the spectrum is that if you have enough kind of sophisticated actors or enough actors that have the ability to contribute towards these systems, this is kind of like more of the Solana approach where, you know, anyone that is engaging with these networks uh with kind of like high enough of like an economic risk like should be operating that sort of a like that sort of a system so you know if i'm engaging with you know maybe and i think it's been interesting in the solana space specifically because we've started to see dows that have like kind of like pooled their resources together in order to actually like collectively contribute through like potentially like operating their own validator node or something like that um and i think that that that's where like uh I think as the architecture like uh, kind of paradigm continues to like shift and like proliferate, like we, we will see like more like nuanced abilities for people to participate in these systems. And candidly, like, I think we, there is a potential future where, you know, users don't even maybe realize that they're doing it. And it's kind of like happening in the background, much like, I don't know, this might be a crude analogy, but it's like, Uh, you know, like you and I like hop onto a website like this, that's like using something like HTTPS. Like we don't necessarily know the intricacies of like what's allowing us to like verify that this connection is secure, but again, might be a crude analogy, but that's where I hope. And that's where I hope things shift to because at the end of the day, I think it is very important that um, as we onboard more people, we are providing the access and tools for them to actually contribute towards, uh, you know, the decentralization Um, And the kind of robustness of the social consensus behind these networks, Um, because without that, like, I really feel like we're kind of missing the forest for the trees, so to speak, as far as like why this technology is important and in hand, why the applications that are built on top of it are also important.
0: Yeah, it's it's been fascinating to kind of watch the space grow and be able to better articulate kind of what decentralization is and. Kind of as you mentioned, some of the preference of the early users, and now how kind of what mainstream may or may not value yeah um, it's it is interesting in in that regard, I think there's been a lot of innovation uh, I mean I think the modular kind of stack in Celestia was really pioneers in this regard of the light clients um, and light clients have um, some unique properties with um the honest majority guarantees um just allowing majority of network to uh flag something and um for a full node do you think if light clients kind of become uh standard or de facto on like kind of across all blockchains does the size of the node um for full nodes really matter too much if you still get the same guarantees uh with light clients or similar guarantees with light clients
1: i see where you're getting at with that i think i think it's always going to be relevant because at the end of the day especially when you think about how users are able to like benefit from like the economic uh like participation in the network so like kind of maybe even stepping back from like the ability for someone to verify but like I think an equal part of like decentralization is ensuring that people have uh, like at least somewhat equitable access to like the economic outcomes of these networks as well. Um, so I, I would hope mm-hmm. that we don't see you know like these kind of like super nodes where it's like you maybe have like these like really really high performance systems because there are like new nu- there is nuance there where it's like okay these systems are only able to operate in like certain uh, like literally like only certain like uh, physical locations because of the requirements there. Um, And it also, like, it it kind of, like, reminds me to some degree of, like, what we saw happen with, like, proof of work consensus as well, whereas, like, yes, anyone can technically participate in Bitcoin consensus. But when you think about, like, how, uh, you know, the, I guess, ownership or control of that consensus has been basically, like, aggregated to these, like, very sophisticated firms that have, like, access to basically, like, free energy and or, like, proprietary, like, ASIC technology... I think that's what would concern me in that regard. Is it's like sure, if you give a bunch of light clients the ability to like activate a user like, user-activated hard fork, where it's like, will they now have to step in and be able to kind of backfill the role of what were like malicious full nodes? So I think there is a balance there. Like we don't want to see like just because we have uh, like this kind of like modular stack where like we can really em- empower light clients, that doesn't mean that like we really need to like like push, you know, the, the full node requirements to the extreme, regardless of of that, because in the event that you do have this like worst case outcome where all the light clients are noticing fraud and they're like, okay, we want to like, essentially like, like fork the network. They're going to be the ones that have to actually like step into, uh, the requirements that those full nodes have. Um, so I, I guess that would kind of be my thoughts on that.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. I I do think it's going to be very interesting. I, I still think light clients are like very earlier in the days. And so I'm well at curious, least in the modular like,
1: perspective, yes. Uh, but I w- I would argue yeah. that like at least in the way that these networks have proliferated historically, like they've always been like a fundamental aspect of like what has empowered the security behind uh like traditional like Byzantine fault tolerant consensus networks.
0: Yes. It it's I'm I'm curious over the long term how they'll continue to kind of be utilized and if they're utilized, how that utilization will ultimately affect full nodes. I think it's going to be something definitely interesting to uh, watch over the coming years. But maybe shifting a little bit, um, talking, so like we kind of like just wrapping this up, talking about like early stage users and their preferences versus... Uh, the majority and majority may not have the same preferences of being able to verify kind of everything from end to end. Um, do you think that, uh, like over time to bring in the ma- majority, we there will just be less people verifying the chain? Like, I mean. I-
1: I don't think it'll be less people, but I I could see an argument where like a, maybe potentially like a lesser percentage of the participants are actually like verifying the chain. So when you think about like, uh, you know, like if you have, you know, 10 million users of a network, like maybe there is like a smaller percentage, but my hope again, is that like, we, we, we create architectures that have the byproduct of like making it like even like seamless or even to the point where it's like, you know, you're like leveraging a network that's, that's, that's like maybe hitting some sort of data availability, uh, network or like leveraging some sort of data availability network. My hope is that like we can make software, uh, basically abstract away like the technical, uh, bridge to participate, um, and, and, and those sorts of things.
0: Yeah. I, I definitely have a point of view on what I think will ultimately that will become. I think I, you start to get into the nitty gritties of like the actual architecture design and some of these things you can't kind of overcome the laws of physics and so i'm i'm definitely curious to see how they'll play out long term but uh i i think um on that front in like block space how, how do you see like the block space like narrative playing out uh some people think we'll need infinite amount of block space some think we only need a small amount uh what is your opinion there
1: yeah, it's funny how like the, the cyclicality of this basically like counters the 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 at least the speculative cycles in my eyes. But um I think one of the things, like one of the trends that I've kind of noticed and even kind of discussed amongst our team is this like we're continuing to see innovation to a point where like the 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 consensus around block space is like somewhat becoming commoditized. Um I always describe like my perspective on this as kind of like a barbell in the sense that, like, I think we see very high demand on both ends of the spectrum where people are willing to kind of take on like very large like trade offs um, on on either ends, whether that means like we see a ton of demand for Ethereum block space today. Um, I think the lendiness of that um, uh, continues to like proliferate. And when you think about like the economic demand for block space on that end, it will continue to prosper, especially when you think about how like institutions or like larger entities actually like underwrite the risk of operating on these networks. I think that's there's always going to be a demand there. Um, on the counter, I think we've seen a lot of really interesting innovation over like even the past 12 months on kind of the other side of the spectrum, which is like this. What are like the minimum set of like guarantees that users can become like somewhat comfortable with? And like when you look through last cycle, it's like, OK, we have chains like BNB, like, you know, proliferating where, you know, there is no permissionless set of, of consensus nodes. Uh, in the sense that, you know, the majority of these things are operated by a single entity. We've seen even that model, you know, iterate. Maybe if we jump to like something like Polygon POS, where it's like very similar structure, maybe some could argue a different ethos. But I think really what's excited me, like I kind of got excited by uh, some of like the early teams building on Validiums. Um, And I think what we've seen with like what Arbitrum has kind of introduced with AnyTrust is you can kind of get a really nice, like uh, kind of compromise there where it's like, hey, if you're an entity or like a community or something that like has the demand to kind of like spin up a network, you don't have as much of a need to like bootstrap the kind of tri- like in the traditional sense of, of how these networks have been bootstrapped the like historically. So when you think about like an AnyTrust setup for those who aren't familiar, you essentially have like a, a one of an honest data availability committee on the back end of this thing where as long as like one of the operators of that network is willing to post um the data availability needed to essentially like prove fraud uh then the to my understanding um the the users are still basically uh empowered with like l1 exit guarantees which is that's kind of how i like define roll-ups in like the broadest sense is it's like what are the exit guarantees of users or like how i would define l2s despite i don't want to kind of go down that rabbit hole given the amount of people that uh like having discussions around the nuance there but um I think that's kind of how I see the demand for block space. Is that like we'll see very high demand on both ends. And we're seeing even on like maybe the more trusted end of the spectrum, like new architectures uh, get introduced that like, I think do uh, create some like net benefits for those types of use cases.
0: Yeah, a lot of parts apart. Um, Where do we begin? On like the Ethereum front. Do you think once like the Nakamoto coefficient is more widely understood people will pay such like a high price for Ethereum block space versus these other networks that um have say like um similar coefficients?
1: Yeah, I think it depends. I think like the price that people are willing to pay for like access to these networks is like like it is much more than the Nakamoto coefficient. When you like define the security of these networks, like decentralization definitely is a part of that, right? Like, again, going back to the beginning of, of the space, like it, it, that was such a requirement because these networks were so early and they were so small that if any single entity did get, you know, like like majority access to these networks, like to, to the consensus of these networks, then it became like it endangered the entirety of, of the stack, right? Um I, I think there's definitely going to be like a lot of pricing pressure, um, but you know, thankfully, like we are seeing, you know, like a lot of innovation. I think in that space, when it comes to uh, things like EIP four eight four four, cetera, that are like hoping to basically empower, uh, you know, the layer twos and rollups that are building on top of that stack, so that they can essentially post cheaper call data to the chain um, and kind of a, 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 a different approach. So, but I definitely, I think, agree with the sentiment that you're trying to get at, which is that like, you know, like our users are always going to be willing to pay that premium. Um, probably, probably not, but I think there's also aspects of like the network effects of, of the actual applications that are existing on top of those networks. And obviously like the liquidity that, that kind of sits alongside that, that plays into that value proposition as well.
0: Yeah. I'm, I'm super interested to see how this plays out. Do you think kind of like Ethereum and it's in state when they're doing kind of the full, like data availability that they plan to roll out with like the 1.3 megabytes per second. Do you think that's going to be enough for demand? Or do you think that uh, they'll kind of artificially cap it at 1.3 megabytes per second? Or do you think they'll just kind of like continue to expand it to meet demand?
1: I guess hard to tell at this point. Like that's for sure. Like I think one of the things I'm very interested around is like when we do see like, uh, like, like 4844 go into effect, like, do we see that like very quickly get filled? Um, like, do we see the like tool sets around people spinning up their own rollups or like these kind of like rollups as a service projects, like really start like kind of filling up that demand. Um, I think I would, I, I, I think if I had to guess, I would say that that would happen on a relatively quickly, like uh, on a relatively quickly basis. But, um, it's gonna be very interesting to see. like I think that's like one of the things that like myself and, and some some team members that I get the the privilege of working with are like very interested in like seeing uh, kind of who's right as far as like our hypothesis there internally.
0: Yeah, I'm. I'm interested. I mean, I still even think with like 1.3 megabytes, it's not going to be enough. Uh, even after four eight four four is implemented, yep. and after the full like rollouts implemented. Yeah, I would
1: totally agree in that sentiment when it comes to like if we're going to like truly onboard like you know the majority of like coordination uh, across society onto these networks or across like like major economies onto these systems there's no way that's going to be sufficient. But um, again, I think there is a, like a, a, a trade-off that like certain users are willing to make where it's like, maybe they don't want to facilitate on, or they don't want to facilitate activity on that sort of a network or trust it, but maybe they're willing to trust like a one event, any trust or something like that.
0: So on the uh, kind of like any trust assumptions uh, with like either Arbitrum Nova or um, yeah, any or with Arbitrum Nova, any trust, what are your thoughts kind of around these like data data availability committees? Because in my point of view, it's kind of like almost in some sense like restarting the network where you're posting some of the data there instead of like officially like using like the Ethereum like full security. Mm-hmm. Um, I I don't know, to me it's just like a smaller group of people that are just running like privileged nodes. So I, 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 in some sense, how do you think of like, I mean, I think in Arbitrum's uh, point of view, I think there's less than 20 uh, people like running this data. Yeah, 21 or something like
1: that, yep.
0: Okay, 21. Uh, Do you think they scale that or do you think it's okay to keep like the smaller amount? Uh, Because to me, this goes back to like the very core of like decentralization. And I think the big thing here that like, and this is why, like, I really, like, would love to have, like, a standard format for decentralization is holding, like, even these layer twos and, like, these data availability committees to, like, similar decentralizations. Um, Standards, yeah. Security at, that we do to, like, other layer ones as well, if they're not using the full security of, like, the layer one.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, I, I remember, like, sitting at, at DevConnect uh, during the L2Beat day, and it was, like, I forget the name of the... Of the man who runs that organization, but like his whole first speech to like introduce this event was just kind of uh, dunking on like the entire L2 space for like how much like 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 uh, like how much there is to improve there. I think the idea that these architectures are building to towards a future where like they can become like essentially uh, at an end state like entirely inherit like the trust assumptions of the L1 uh, or the lack of trust assumptions at the L1. Um, that's the future that I I hope we can build towards like ultimately. Um, But uh, I think there are a lot of valid criticisms as far as how those systems exist today. And like, to your point, when it comes to uh, you know, like maybe some of these more kind of like centralized data availability committees on, on something like an any trust. I think it becomes like a byproduct of like what uh, you know, the users and like developers of those networks are willing to accept. So like one of the arguments I could see is it's like, okay, if, every operator, regardless of like their social standing, you know, you have like these different entities that are like well-known and if at any point the users basically get rugged, they would have to get rugged by all of them simultaneously, or they'd have to get rugged by like a portion of them simultaneously. And then maybe there's like some, you know, catastrophic failure of, of the client software on the other end um, that could lead towards uh, like, you know, uh, like the out like a, like a poor outcome for users where they essentially get like rugged by the chain and, um, but I, I definitely align with I think the point that you're trying to, to mention, which is that like there there needs to be um you know like very uh, uh like genuine like critiques of these systems as they exist in their current states. And I, I don't think we necessarily see a need for like the like node count on something like an Arbitrary like a, like an mini trust uh, to increase just because of like the trust assumptions that they're like kind of assuming from the foundation. Um, but um I, I would expect that if there's demand from users or developers for that to increase or how maybe we even see like like very large issues that like force them to like increase the maybe the geographical distribution of of those nodes, then I, I could see that being uh, like a potential future where they would they would want to kind of improve that
0: yeah i I think the industry, I mean, one thing that I'm very envious of, of Ethereum, I think in part, this is just because the community's been around for the longest, uh, is their ability to tell a story and tell the narrative and like push that out. So I think they've been very good at telling like the L2 narrative, but I don't think they've fairly kind of assess the layer twos against even other like non-Ethereum layer ones. And applying the same kind of rubric of scrutiny that they do to like kind of um their own uh, kind of bags yeah, their own and so, yeah no, i would definitely yeah. agree
1: like there, there there definitely is bias that i see there i would say that like i've seen like a good amount of like legitimate criticism within like the kind of ethereum centric space from at least like those in my network where Again, like you're going to like a specific like L2 event, uh, and the first thing that happens is basically someone saying like, "Hey, this is everything that is kind of wrong," and like kind of setting the tone to some degree. Um, but you know, to your point, like I think there are at least in their current state, like a lot of kind of unfair comparisons um, between uh, like layer two systems as they exist today versus like how they want to exist in the future. I think that's a big part that you have to consider as well. Um, for People sure. are kind of describing that end state as, as, as the way that things are currently. And that's just, that's not the case.
0: And maybe to kind of wrap up this, do you think volitions or volitions ultimately will play a role in that, uh, in the end state or, um, cause in my point of view, I, I still think they need to scale like the number of, uh, parties, um, uh, in some sense, they're kind of like, uh, act as full nodes to the data availability committee
1: like do you think think those need to scale i think it just depends on like what they're trying to achieve and like the demand that they're trying to Mm -hmm. to to kind of meet right like i think there are going to be like a lot of applications whether that be games or like kind of like more kind of like like novel applications of this software stack that like are going to be willing to take on those compromises you know it's like if i get rugged on you know the like history of like my lens profile or something like maybe that's not the end of the world, but like, okay, if I get rugged on uh, like a large position and DeFi, then like that's maybe a, a, a compromise that myself as a user or even potentially developers that are trying to launch their businesses on top of these networks aren't willing to accept. So uh, if I had to guess, I would, I don't think like we're explicitly going to see like faults there that like result in change, but I do expect that we, do, like we see some some missteps on that end of the spectrum where uh, and how, like, look at something like what would happen with Ronin. Um, like, you know, people try to experiment on that end of the spectrum and if they don't do it properly, like it becomes catastrophic. Um, and I think that's kind of the, 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 the pros and cons that people have to kind of weigh out is that like, when things do go bad this low in, in the stack, like it's, it's really bad. Um, and it's really hard to recover yeah. from as well for both the protocol and- as well as the applications that build on top of it.
0: And to that point, though, then, wouldn't it be more advantageous just to build on these like more the n- newer networks that are coming out that are like high throughput um, and low latency that have like higher Nakamoto coefficient, have higher full nodes, and you get the uh, like honest minority uh, assumptions with the like clients?
1: Yeah, I think it's like it's absolutely like an outcome that I, I expect there to be demand there for sure. Um, I just think like especially when you you, if you don't even like dig into like the decentralization or the security of of these networks but you think like holistically about like what gives them value or like what brings developers there um you know i think there is a lot of nuance there and that kind of like dives into you know the spectrum of like new like domain specific languages and like virtual machines we've seen and like what type of infrastructure or like what type of kind of like blockchain architecture are they launching on top of and why Mm -hmm. um you know there's definitely benefits to the things that you said so like i think there will be demand there um, and there's probably an argument for, for teams to, to leverage that technology, just depending on what exactly their use case is.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, unfortunately, I, and this is why, again, like I would love like the common language, because I yep. think when you actually go to like, uh, these big companies or even being able to educate retail in some sense, being able to kind of provide these more apples to apples comparison, I think mm. not only help like institutionals on board into the ecosystem, but also give a better understanding into um retail and what kind of assumptions they're making by using the chains or what properties they're getting from the chain. Because as you mentioned, if something does go bad, it's very bad. And so Yeah, I I, having standard language across the industry would be great. But on on the virtual machine side, uh, touching upon that briefly, now there's like, I mean, the more Lindy kind of the EVM, uh, but there's newer virtual machines that are coming out. What is your kind of view on the virtual machine landscape? um, And uh, how do you see it playing out for like the end game?
1: Yeah, I, I think we've, like, finally reached, like, a, a stage of, like, ma- like uh, of maturity in this space where it's, like, we've, like, seen all of the things that can go wrong with, like, the design trade-offs that we, you know, made in, like, 2015 or 2016 in the case of the EVM. Um, and there's, like, absolutely room for teams that are basically, like, coming in and, like, attempting to, like, articulate the lessons learned from, from those domain-specific languages and those virtual machines and introduce... Uh, like that kind of like new paradigms or like new, new toolkits. I think one one of the things that I consider a lot when I'm looking at these projects is, um, you know, based on on my time in this space, I think one thing that people often undervalue or kind of like, uh, like under target is uh, the amount of what I kind of call like the activation energy that's required to like uh, kind of initialize and like proliferate these new stacks. Um, but I'm definitely very, very excited and bullish by, uh, teams that are coming to market with uh, kind of like net new DSLs and VMs, just because I think there are such like large uh, learnings, uh, as you'll often come across on on, on crypto Twitter and elsewhere, um, when it comes to like the limitations of the EVM. On the contrary to that, though, maybe quickly, um, I think there is a, a part that people have to understand as far as like how uh, like larger entities or even like, you know, like, like larger application developers, like some of the institutions that you mentioned, how they underwrite risk in this space, again, beyond the protocols that are actually like running the chain. But when it comes to the code that they're operating on top of and like the lendiness of that, you know, like a, an institution that is like already uncomfortable, like leveraging blockchain technology is probably much more likely to leverage Aave V2 on Ethereum versus Aave V3. Um, and the standards and tooling that exist around, these more traditional VMs and DSLs like has had such a significant head start, um, for creating again, certain types of applications, I think. So I think we're going to see a lot of these maybe applications in like the gaming and like other spheres that are kind of like more like novel experimenting with these new DSLs and VMs just because there's inherent benefits to doing so, but maybe I'll pause there.
0: Do you think, uh, long-term, uh, like single-threaded virtual machines, like the EVM, will have its place or like be relevant over the high-performance uh, virtual machines uh, that are parallel.
1: Yeah, um, I think depending on what lo- how you define long-term, I could see you know a future where like eventually like we shift away from these architectures, but like. And this might be a crude analogy, but like you think about like, you know, like how some like corporations operate today on like systems that are from way, way, way too far back to like make you feel comfortable, like uh, you know, even like like as of recently, like boarding, you know, a southwest flight over over Christmas. Um I think we will slowly start seeing those systems get replaced if you like really play out uh over time, um, especially just given the fact that like you know, state is what is, is valuable when it comes to like the composability of the space. And obviously these parallel, like parallelizable VMs, I think have like a huge advantage there as far as like helping proliferate and, uh, offer like cheaper and like more efficient access to that state.
0: Yeah. I, I'm not super optimistic on the, the single thread of virtual machines. Uh, I, I think like in large part, I mean, there there's definitely some lendiness, but hmm. I think just because there's so few devs and there's actually so few users that like people largely overestimate uh, kind of like the dominance of these things so far. And so I'm super interested to see, like once we actually get to like going back to earlier, like more mass adoption, say like a mm-hmm. hundred million like monthly active users and that could be spread out across like how many ever chains but what is the dominant like virtual machine and dominant network that those active addresses are on Um, yeah i just think it's too early to tell
1: yeah i would definitely agree with that um i definitely also i think see some of your perspective as far as like you know maybe that activation energy isn't as high as some would some would say but um i I think the other thing that's really exciting here and that i think people are starting to come around to is that like you can launch like these virtual machines um, and like kind of these like net new execution environments on like already kind of performant Lindy stacks. So if we're not even talking about like the lindiness of the application, uh, like like code that's operating um, that, that's operating these user applications, I think there's also this aspect where you know we're seeing teams uh, come to market with uh, with 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 uh, these net new VMs that can be launched on like already kind of performant and like proven. Um, like network infrastructure under them. Um, so I think that'll be really exciting because I, I think that's what makes me most excited about that space is you see these teams like basically saying like, hey, we're going to launch this VM with like eight different configurations depending on where the demand is. Um, and I think that's going to see be a trend that we like continue to, to see proliferate. Like we've even seen this with the Solana VM with, with teams like Eclipse, et cetera, um, that are looking to bring you know, the benefits of that virtual machine, but on to kind of a different set of trade-offs from the architecture it's operating on top of.
0: I also think the VM space right now is so early that, I mean, a lot of different design people want to experiment with the design, but yep. over the long-term, I do think we, similar to like layer ones, we kind of coalesce on a few. Uh, I don't think having a bunch of different virtual machines or hundreds or thousands is going to be beneficial because then developers have to rewrite their apps or like port them and make the code changes. And so, yeah, I I think it's also early that people are trying different things, but once like one actually starts to get lots of adoption... uh, it's going to be hard to break but i don't think we've actually have seen that as of yet yeah
1: and i think there's also this aspect that i don't want to speak too much on this because i don't think I'm, 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 I'm as educated as i was wanted as i would want to be on it but there's i think some of these generalized vms as well that are coming to market that are just like really opening up like hey like you can kind of launch whatever type of code you want on this and hell maybe you're not even having to rewrite your code because you're able to kind of leverage it based on the architecture though. So again, don't want to get into that too much because I don't feel like I'm too much of a subject matter expert there, but we'll be excited to see how that that, that kind of develops over the, the coming years as well.
0: Definitely. Well, we've talked a lot on like, just like end user verification and uh, ultimately mass adoption, the different blockchains and their architectures, different virtual machines to kind of get us there. But outside of that, uh, I think you and I both think a lot about like custody and different applications. Mm-hmm. Um in interest of time maybe like touch briefly on like some of your like high level thoughts on like custody solutions and even how that ultimately um gets incorporated like within wallets and how we can like make better wallet experiences
1: yeah absolutely i think historically again like we've seen users basically have like two options leading up to like maybe let's just say like 2021 um you either are like fully self-custodied and like you're potentially blind signing on the ledger, et cetera. And like that introduces its own set of risk for Purdue for entrance. And then on the other side, we've seen both, I think the benefits and obviously the the kind of fatal flaws of, of centralized custody. Um, I think for the first time this cycle, like a lot of what excites me in this space is kind of these solutions that exist in the middle. And I've kind of like, I think mentioned them as like these kind of like shared custody or like kind of partial custody solutions. What I'm talking about here is like, not the Coinbase wallet like extension, but like if you go into Coinbase's exchange app and you go to like their web three browser, like you're actually like launching an NPC wallet where you essentially have your private key stored on your device um, and you're leveraging that security model. Um, But at the same time, like if I recall correctly, like you're never seeing a seed phrase here. and you basically have traditional kind of like Web2 style account recovery that Coinbase's MPC architecture that also protects, you know, however many billions of assets they're custodying. Um, it allows users to get access to that. And I think that's really exciting. So, um, you know, we've also seen a lot of innovation here um, from, from, from various teams in the wallet space that are looking to introduce like smart contract wallets on chain that also can kind of introduce this sort of kind of a shared custody um, experience. But I think that the one thing is like, we have to stop throwing users off the deep end and acting like everyone has had the privilege that, that some of us have had to like learn these systems when like, maybe, you know, you don't have as much exposed, like someone like myself can like, can like have, you know, their grid plus and like be running, you know, they're like rolling their own RPCs, but like, we need to be giving people solutions that kind of exist in the middle and almost kind of like allow them to kind of like, progress and, and and kind of like go through like grade school before they jump to high school when it comes to self custody. Cause I think I do have hope that like people can kind of be independent down the road, but like we, it's so obvious that like we need better tools and guardrails, et cetera, in order to empower that end game. And in the meantime, we need solutions that exist in the middle in order to best service users.
0: I do agree. I mean, in large part, regardless of kind of which layer one or layer two, you kind of build upon today, I think the end goal really is uh, self-custody and like Web3 uh, with like a good amount of like decentralization, uh, whatever that may be. But the, the I mean, real thing is uh, kind of the self-custody of the assets. And so, yeah, I, I mean, outside of exchanges, wallets, I think, really are going to become the focal point of everybody's day-to-day interactions and how they really interact with chains how they pay for things and so today that self custody is so hard like you mentioned blind signing uh, it's it's gonna be difficult and is difficult to ultimately, onboard normies in the sense that uh, one, it's so like the infrastructure is, I mean, gas costs can be relatively high, but then mm-hmm. two, like they have no idea whether what they're approving is legit or not, or yeah. you get a discord link or whatever. And so, yeah, wallets are definitely going to continue to be an interesting point uh, and something that needs work for the next coming years. Yeah, and- Unlike those
1: Oh, I was ahead. just gonna mention like maybe one more quick thing before we break from this like we've seen both a ton of experimentation a ton of early stage products like my web3 security market map right now is like hundred and fifty different entities when it comes to these new solutions that are like looking to kind of serve as like guardrails for wallets so they basically service an api that wallets can you know do this combination of transaction simulation and like transaction reputation or like confidence uh like scoring and I think that's a big gonna be a big part of this as well again not that that you know, kind of is in line with, I think, this like decentralized ethos at the end of the day. But I think that like very but very much services this middle ground to so the point now where we have some of these APIs like already uh, kind of contextualizing even like EIP 712 messages on Seaport. Um, and I, I hope that that both continues to get funding and like continues to uh, see pressure on the wallets to integrate those sorts of solutions. Um, it's not, a, it's, it's kind of more of a band-aid than it is, uh, an end-all solution, but I'm really excited about the teams that are are exploring that as well.
0: Yeah. Uh we're still very early in the idea maze of what kind of the end goal or the end state of wallets and wallet security look like. So uh excited as well to continue to watch that front. Um hmm. maybe kind of like wrapping up the conversation for the last couple of minutes. Uh what like Areas of I mean, we've talked a lot about infrastructure mm-hmm. and now wallets. What are like some key areas of focus that you're actually looking forward to forward to in 2023? Uh whether like DeFi, like NFTs, uh what I guess what do you think will actually bring in normies to get to that hundred million plus yeah. mark of like active addresses?
1: Yeah. I always joke that, uh, that like DeFi was like a game without a skin. And like when the incentives are right and these mechanisms are in these applications, like that's how you onboard people. When people realize like, Oh, Hey, you know, maybe a lot of it was kind of speculative driven during the last cycle as far as like, Oh, I can make my first Uniswap trade. I can own an NFT on OpenSea, et cetera. I think continuing to like empower end users with like net new markets. Um, and like, maybe those are like, you know, markets outside of, traditional like tokens. Like we, like, I think, I think there's been a lot of discussion and projects that are uh, working in the space of essentially like creating kind of like sovereign user data um, and uh, basically like giving people access to like sell and like potentially like monetize their data in a more direct way versus the status quo of of kind of the uh, like ad monopolies or duopolies that exist. Uh, that's one thing that I'm really excited about and like, one of the main things that gets me like excited, like in the NFT space is people using uh, this on-chain data in like a more uh, like generalized and like kind of like less valuable way, so to speak. Um, so chatting with a lot of teams right now that I think have really interesting and kind of like novel ideas around empowering applications to like assist their users to uh, create that sort of kind of like a, I think a lot of people have been kind of calling them data pack- backpacks, etc., um, but I think that's like ultimately like what has to be the incentive to drive people. It's like, you're either playing, like going to play a game that you don't really know has like blockchain in the back end until you like go to sell something. Or I think it's like applications that can create like net new economies and net new markets for people to participate in. Cause like at the end of the day, like empowering users with like direct incentives is I think ultimately like what this space is like essentially trying to arbitrage in many ways. Um, so that's I, I guess kind of directionally like what excites me a lot in that space as far as like the types of applications that could be that catalyst for uh the the kind of like next wave of adoption that we see
0: yeah i'm I'm super interested to see what like twenty twenty three holds I think no one or very few people uh anticipated kind of the nFT bull Myself market Myself did <laughs> how many people NFTs would ultimately uh, onboard into, or how many people would onboard because of NFTs. I think the electric capital report was saying, I think 80% of people's first interactions with like self-custody was NFTs, which is pretty remarkable. But I'm very curious to uh, see what the next catalyst will be. Um, Cool. Well, maybe like, Uh, wrapping things up on I I kind of in my previous podcast I used to end the podcast on like spicy questions uh, and I haven't done it for a while but I think it may be good to bring it back
1: we got to bring it back
0: and and maybe like starting off like what what do you think would be like your most spicy opinion that you hold in crypto uh, that not very many believe or do you think uh, will eventually play out
1: uh, unfortunately, my spicy take has taken a little bit of a shift over the past four weeks with like the whole ordinals on Bitcoin uh, kind of uh, trend. Um, but yeah, I've I've always kind of like joked and teased. I think a lot of crypto native friends around like my kind of general bearishness on on Bitcoin as a network. And I don't want to like say anything about like the asset side of things, but I think. It's, it is a good end goal for these networks to like want to ossify in some sense where they just become this kind of like standard that like doesn't need to change and the change happens elsewhere. But when I think, uh, you know, the, the best things that could be happening for Bitcoin, some people would argue it's like maintaining kind of the, the 21 million like supply cap meme and like kind of having this like purest vision of like what, you know, Satoshi like wanted like this chain to be. Um, but I think that's kind of like, diverges from reality like sure it can service like a a very like niche reality where like you know the world kind of blows up and like all these people are underground in their bunkers with their bitcoin but i think these networks have an inherent need to like adapt to uh to, to to the environment or like the economies that they're kind of like interacting with and like the other like yesterday i'm like looking at like how like Complicated it is for people to like try to create like trustless exchanges of like these ordinal NFTs on Bitcoin. And I'm just like, guys, like, at what point are we like just like losing the plot? Um, but I would say that that's like a lot, like one of my spicier takes. And again, this is like as someone who was like very empowered by Bitcoin as a network going all the way back, you know, over 10 years now. Um, I just think there's uh, a lot more competition in the space than that. And I, It'll always like hold a, a close place in my heart. And I always want to see that network proliferate. But I think uh, there's kind of this catch-22, as I described it, where like, uh, you know, the ossification of its social consensus is both its like biggest strength as well as its like Achilles heel. So I think that would be uh, maybe my, my spicy take for now. Um,
0: so Bitcoin should stay to uh 10 minute block times (laughs) and just like digital, digital, uh, gold.
1: I I think, again, I I think it does service a market and I think like there is a demand and there obviously is like a notoriety. So like, I won't comment on like the the investment thesis that people have there, but you know, I want that network to proliferate, but I think there does have to be this kind of recognition that like, I think I had a tweet on this like a few weeks back that was like, you know, the only upgrade that the social consensus of that network has achieved over the past 2000 days had 2% network adoption. Um, and this was obviously pre-ordinal. So I was joking yesterday on Twitter, like, oh, I was way too, like I, I should have waited a few weeks before I tweeted that. Cause I think it's increased to like 10% tap adoption now. But um, again, I hope that network does well. I just think there's uh, a lot more kind of uh, players in the field, so to speak now. And um, many that are kind of gunning for, I think what it, like kind of the original vision of, of that network was Versus what it actually exists as today. So,
0: makes sense. Um, what probability would you assign to Ethereum no longer being the dominant smart contract platform?
1: The EVM or like Ethereum the network? Um,
0: uh, maybe both. But you yeah, can and like how would you how would you do, how,
1: like how would you define dominant? Like is this like uh like like U.S. dollar value transacting across chain?
0: Not. Not in TVL. I, I think the most interesting metric on all, all of these blockchains is really active addresses. I mean, I think that's our best way, at least today, to um, determine like network usage. Um, so I would say active addresses and then, I mean, transaction count. That's already not the highest, but um, yeah, I would say active addresses and then, I guess over the long-term, like maybe like developers.
1: Yeah. So um, I do maybe uh, break from your uh, like confidence in the daily active addresses stuff. I could share some, some uh, some threads I had on this and maybe you can throw them in the show notes or something. Um, I don't What do believe, you think is a better metric? I, I think it's just like more nuanced than that. I think anyone that like attempts to like look at daily active addresses and compare it apples to apples across chains, just like, there can be signal there, but like relying on that as a sole metric, I think is 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 I don't want to say disingenuous, but I just think it's uh, it's not like a, a reasonable way to measure utility. I think I've been interested by I think it's Michael over on the Optimism team. I think that has done a good job on Dune of like trying to get more granular and like just again provide more context versus having this like you know this like single metric that people are using. And he's looking at like. Uh, Just like a number of kind of like more nuanced uh, like activity on chain versus just just, uh, you know, the ability for someone to, you know, deposit state rent into a Solana account or something like that. And send you know, a few lamports every day or whatever it is, Um, maybe
0: like to break it down even further, like active addresses that are like fee paying. So like they're actively signing and fee paying. Like what what probability would you prescribe? Well, I think Polygon it's the top three right now are Solana Polygon and ETH, but mm-hmm. over the long term, like what what do you think is the probability that Ethereum is no longer kind of the dominant smart contract platform based on active fee payers and uh like the developer ecosystem?
1: Yeah. I, I think the, the 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 nuance there is that like at least for ETH L1, like it will shift like how you define what a user or L2. is. L2, L2, include yeah. L2. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Um all,
0: all, all L2s and ETH. Do you think like all that, like when I think of Ethereum, I think of like, I include the L2 ecosystem, like all of them. So include all the L2s and like the base layer.
1: And by dominant, again, we're saying. uh,
0: Account paying addresses and uh, developer ecosystem across all L2s and L1s.
1: I would say it's probably like very, very low like you and I could spin up a chain and have people paying fees. Uh, like not tried to, to kind of like dig or like jump around the question, but like that's kind of the point of like what I, I think isn't fair around uh, like, like actually like measuring utility with that sort of a measure. but I would say it's pretty low. Like I don't think that uh, if you wanted to measure it from like a quantity perspective that uh, that network will reach as many people um, even when you combine L2s just because I think there's like a very specific type of use case around like secure DeFi and secure applications of that services very well. And to your point earlier, like there are such like a wider spectrum of opportunities for people to pursue in in, in other areas where, you know, all it takes is like, a, like an app like Stepin or, you know, a token like Bonk, et cetera, to like really or like even like better wallet experience, et cetera, or like, you know, there is potential for these ecosystems to kind of lack um you know the progress that's been made in 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 and on ethereum specifically or in the ethereum ecosystem so i would say it's pretty low but i also would just preface that with like you and i could spin up a chain we can have people that are paying fees and really it's a bunch of different addresses but it's just your like a, a python script that we're running
0: yeah i mean we can definitely debate this more but uh maybe yep. last uh question um of Last spicy question, uh, which like ecosystem, whether L1 or L2, are you most excited about, uh, going forward for 2023?
1: It's kind of interesting. Like, I don't, I don't want to like, maybe like, like, like call out or like highlight specific projects, but like, I think one of the things I am very, very excited about are people bringing, uh, these VMs that have like shown success and like, so they have, have like shown like technical, like, uh, Uh, like benefits versus like the kind of historical EVM model. I'm excited about those coming to uh, like very robust, like blockchain architectures underpinning them. Um, So, you know, I'm, I'm excited about the, the potential also for like the teams and like ecosystems that are like bringing people in, regardless of like the amount of funding that they have. I'm excited for that to like become more diverse where it's like, you do have these ecosystems that are like focusing on different areas and like even like different like partnerships with like traditional entities, et cetera, and I'm excited about like how broad that is now versus like what it was in like 2018 and like like the pre- like previous like valley of the bear market where it was just like, you know, people try to like still attempting to like launch ICOs a little bit too late and like kind of like try the speculative mania that was that was on Ethereum. So, um, I would say broadly like I'm excited about people launching new technology on like proven architectures. Uh, like proven blockchain, like architectures um, that I think kind of give people the best of both worlds in some sense, where they can have you know things like more native, uh, like VM level account abstraction, while also like inheriting the security that I think is important for like developers to uh, kind of take on the responsibility on behalf of their users for, um, and and that could be you know a number of chains. I don't know. I don't know if I necessarily want to like name out specific ones, but um, overall, like I'm just like incredibly optimistic about. Like the amount of people that have had the privilege, uh, like based on the last cycle to like continue innovating in this space um, and like bringing new tools and uh, that hopefully evolving into like much different uh, applications than like we've historically seen or like different use cases that we've seen historically.
0: Definitely. Cool. Well, we'll end it there. Uh, really appreciate you coming on the podcast, Joe. Thanks for uh, sharing all your takes, uh, uh, what you kind of look for in, in these different ecosystems, how you think about it, um, what you're looking forward to in 2023, and uh, all of the spicy questions. So uh, yeah, thank you again. Appreciate it, Logan.